we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the Center. And our guest this episode is Stephen Camerata, the director of research at the Center. Steve likes to say he puts the think in think tank. And so we're going to be starting our conversation about a report that he and his team did recently and then, you know, see where it goes from there. The report Steve and his colleague Karen Ziegler put together was to estimate how much money we give via the IRS tax filing process, but how much cash, essentially welfare, goes to illegal immigrants through, and he'll explain this in more detail, through the earned income tax credit and the additional child tax credit, which aren't tax deductions, which is kind of what they sound like to people who aren't into this. Rather, it's actually a money transfer program. It just happens to be run via the tax filing process. And then we'll talk a little about what specifically, how many billions are involved here, but it's also, and that's important because, you know, a billion here, a billion there, it adds up. But also more broadly, what does this tell us about our approach to immigration policy? So Steve, thanks for your, for coming for your uh, inaugural performance on our podcast. And why don't you tell folks sort of what this is about, what these two programs are, and then what you found out about them. Right. Well, again, thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC, and the Additional Child Tax Credit, or ACTC, are really two of the largest cash assistance programs for low-income workers. Now, as Mark also mentioned, despite their names, both programs are cash payments. They are not tax refunds. They are not tax deductions. These basically are payments made out to people who have sufficiently low incomes. We could go into more detail if you like, but basically you can't make more than $57,000, say, to receive the EITC. Again, that's the Earned Income Tax Credit, and you have to have that income is mostly all from working. On average, people who get this payment get about $2,500. Mostly people with children, you can get a payment, but it's quite modest if you don't have any children, but essentially it's a program designed for low-income workers with children. Now, the ACTC, it's a little broader, but you still have to have work-related income, but the income requirements from work are somewhat less. But on the other hand, you have to have a child. It only goes to people with children. Because that's the name, obviously. Right. So again, think of both of these programs as our nation's main or most important cash programs for low-income workers. Now, the ability of illegal immigrants, which was our focus here, to get these programs 
depend somewhat on what documentation they may have. So here's how it works. For the earned income tax credit, the law is very clear that you cannot receive it unless you have a social security number. So you might think, if you didn't know a lot about this, well, then I guess that means no illegal immigrants get it. But that's not true. Millions of illegal immigrants actually have social security numbers, allowing them to potentially get both programs. Now, if an illegal immigrant doesn't have a social security number, then they would not be able to get the earned income tax credit. However, the way the law is constructed for the additional child tax credit, they can get that cash payment by applying for what is often referred to as an ITIN or an individual taxpayer identification number. You do not have to be legal in the United States to receive that number. We can talk, and I think this is an important point, why we even have that system, why we let knowingly illegal immigrants get that ITIN number, but that is the state of affairs. So it's important to understand what's going on before we start to think about if we want to keep doing this. But right now, illegal immigrants who have social security numbers get the EITC and they get the ACTC if they have children and their income qualified. And illegal immigrants who don't have social security numbers cannot get the EITC, but they would still be able to get the ACTC. So one of the first steps is to figure out how many illegal immigrants have social security numbers and how many maybe have individual taxpayer identification numbers. Now, for the social security numbers, we know that just within the last year, the Homeland Security has issued about 2 million new social security numbers to illegal immigrants or renewed them. And they do this along with their work authorization. So you might say, well, wait, if someone's illegally in the United States, how could they have work authorization? That doesn't make sense. But it turns out again that no, you can be illegal in the United States and have work authorization. One of the probably the biggest group and the one you might be most familiar with are the so-called DREAMers, people with DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is a population that all the analysis shows is basically only adults, and they have all of them are issued social security numbers and work authorization. So all of those individuals are allowed to receive the earned income tax credit because they all have social security numbers, and it turns out a large fraction have children as well. Just to be um, clear on that, Steve, yeah. the if you are given a work permit, it's called an employment authorization document. If you issued one of those by Homeland Security, the Social Security number basically kind of comes with it. In other words, because if you're going to be working, you have to have a Social Security number. So it's in other words, people aren't getting Social Security numbers just because, hey, I want a number. It's they get a work permit, and then the Social Security number comes along with that. Exactly. That's exactly right, Mark. That's a good point. Okay. So in addition to people with DACA, that, that, uh, the DREAMers, people with temporary protected status. These are individuals who are from a country where there was chaos or natural disaster, and they too have work authorization and social security numbers. And then there are also a large number of people who have applied for asylum, and that system is so choked with applicants, it can take years for your case even to be heard. And at a point in the process when you apply for asylum, you may also receive work authorization and a social security number. Now, there are a whole host of other illegal immigrants who have social security numbers as well. People with suspension of deportation, as well as parolees, those granted what's called withholding of removal. And then there are even a whole series of other smaller categories. 
in total, about 2 million adult illegal immigrants have work authorization and social security numbers, allowing them to receive the EITC and ACTC. And Steve, aren't some of the people with valid social security numbers who are illegal visa overstayers too? In other words, they were issued numbers that were real numbers. They were really here legally, but on some kind of temporary work visa or temporary visa of whatever kind. In other words, they, they're no longer in status on that visa. They've become illegal aliens, but the number is still valid, right? And, and Social right. Security doesn't have any you know, expiration date, as far as I know, on Social Security numbers. Right. So there are two additional groups of illegal immigrants with valid Social Security numbers or with Social Security numbers. The Social Security Administration had previously estimated about 700,000 illegal immigrants have stolen identities, including Social Security numbers that they're using. And about 600,000 other illegal immigrants are essentially previously valid numbers, mostly guest workers, but it could be some other groups like people whose asylum claim was denied, but they had received Social Security numbers earlier. So right, those numbers can be big as well. In total, we feel that there are about 2.6, 2.7 million illegal immigrants that are going to be able to use their Social Security numbers to get both the EITC and ACTC if they have the income and depending on how many kids they have. Now, there are other people as well, and you might say, well, they surely they couldn't get it. It's an open question. We're just, it's not clear what mechanisms the IRS and the Social Security Administration do to say weed out those people that Mark just mentioned, those who had previously valid numbers. They don't put an expiration date on it. They know who those people are, but they may well get it. And the stolen identity is another group. But if you proceed from the assumption that there's about 2.7 million illegal immigrants with valid Social Security numbers, you can use Census Bureau data, which is what we've done here, and try to pick out the illegal immigrants who are in these categories, like TPS or DACA recipients. And when you do that, we find that those individuals would be receiving a great deal of money from both the EITC and the ACTC. Our best estimate is that illegal immigrants with Social Security numbers receive about $2.9 billion, but billion with a B, from both the EITC and the ACTC, about 2 million from the EITC and about 900,000 from the ACTC. Again, this is based on their characteristics, including the number of children they have. 900 million, I think you meant, right? Yeah, 900 million. In addition, we estimate that there are other illegal immigrants who may use the individual taxpayer identification number, again, that ITIN, and they likely receive between about 900 million and 1.6 billion from the ACTC. A couple quick technical notes. You do have to have valid social security numbers for your children. So in our analysis, we assume that illegal immigrant children uh, are not a source of these income, that, they, that, that their parents may not use them on their tax returns to get this cash payment. But since the vast majority, over 80%, of children in illegal immigrant families are U.S. born, that requirement that the child has a valid social doesn't make very much difference because all persons born in the United States are automatically granted U.S. citizenship 
and with that comes a social security number. So all the U.S. born children of illegal immigrants have social security numbers. And as we've talked about, a lot of their parents have social security numbers and a lot of their parents can also get the individual taxpayer identification number so that they can at least access the ACTC. Um, the, uh, Steve, just one okay. point on the ACTC thing and mm -hmm. social security numbers. It actually, in order to get ACTC, the kid does have to have a social right, security I, I, number, but that's a that wasn't the case until a few years ago. In other words, before you had illegal immigrants with these ITINs, which are basically they're the same length as social security numbers. It, it's a kind of stand-in fake social security number the government issues. But they were able to claim the additional child tax credit on behalf of kids who did not have social security numbers. Some of them, they actually listed people who weren't even in the United States. I mean, it was outrageous. There was a pretty in-depth news investigation. Uh, actually, I think we gave our journalism award one year to a local journalist out in the Midwest who had done really significant spade work on this. My only point here is it's not always bad. They actually did tighten up that system. So at the very least, the kids who would be the reason you get the additional child tax credit, they at least have to have social security numbers. Yes. One of the things actually that created the political pressure to do something about this was a 2011 inspector general's report that showed that illegal immigrants were receiving more than $4 billion a year from the ACTC and they didn't have to have social security numbers, and they had kids who didn't even have to have social security numbers. And so both the 2015 PATH Act and the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act tried to curtail this. And our analysis, as best we can tell, indicates that they have curtailed it. Now, there is one big caveat here. It appears that in the last few years, the IRS, Social Security, nobody, none of the none of the government is actually publishing the number of tax returns in which people are using ITINs. So the actual extent, we can try to derive, we can look at older data, we can at least look at the number of new ITINs that got issued, and it looks to be still a big number, but we actually don't know anymore how many people are using ITINs to file taxes. and conceivably get the ACTC. We're just not certain. We think we have a pretty good idea, but for whatever reason, the government has explicitly chosen not to publish it after publishing it pretty much on a regular basis. The most recent data that exists is about 2015, well, as far as we could tell. As Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. Uh, I suspect I mean, there's a that real transparency yeah. issue there that we're seeing throughout lots of immigration on the government, right. even before, but even more of it now, right. lack of transparency. Right. The government is not putting out apprehension figures in a detailed way, or the government's not telling us about ITIN use in a detailed way. They're obscuring some of their deportation numbers in certain ways, all to make it look like, A, they're doing more, B, the problem is not so bad, all designed to say not to worry. And I guess if you deny people information, then it is kind of hard to be worried about a problem if you don't even give them the information to look at it and evaluate it for themselves. And unfortunately, we're seeing things like that. So what's the bottom line on the, your estimates of how much through these two programs illegal immigrants get? Well, because of the ambiguity about how many people are using ITINs, we don't know for sure, but you're looking at somewhere around four to four and a half billion dollars from these two programs that illegal immigrants are getting. Now, that's in addition to about 4.4 billion we'd previously estimated 
that illegal immigrants are likely received in stimulus checks. Again, those with Social Security numbers were able to get the stimulus checks. And those checks were very generous, particularly if you had children, and most of the illegal immigrants did. So this year was a very good year to be an illegal immigrant. As far as getting cash Cash from the government. From taxpayers, yep. Obviously, this report and the one about the stimulus checks are both online at cis.org. You can just go to, probably go to staff or something and click on Steve's name and you'll see all his publications. You know, there's one other point I want to make. Now, you might think, and this is important to know, that, well, gosh, all, all these illegal immigrants are all getting these programs. That is not the case. Some illegal immigrants don't have children, so U.S.-born children, many don't. Most do, but some don't. Also, some illegal immigrants, they have too high an income or they don't have social security number or they don't get an ITIN. Here's what we've been able to estimate in terms of the share of illegal immigrants who can get these programs. We estimate that about 19% of all adult illegal immigrants are poor enough to receive the EITC and about 15% are poor enough to receive the ACTC. Remember, it may surprise you, but there are a significant number of illegal immigrants who aren't very poor. Yes, and I'll give you some comparison in a second. Illegal immigrants are definitely much poorer than the average native. A larger percentage live in poverty, but not all do. There are illegal immigrants who make $40,000 a year in construction, and that individual might have a spouse who makes another thirty in daycare or 25000 daycare. It's not uncommon to see an illegal immigrant household with $60,000 a year income, and that would put them beyond what they could receive from these programs. Now, one of the big limiting factors, again, is if they don't have U.S.-born children. If they don't have U.S.-born children, they're not going to get virtually anything from these programs. Now, I said that about 19% of illegal immigrants look poor enough to get the EITC, and about 15% of illegal immigrants are poor enough uh, or ha- and have children, that's an important point, to receive the ACTC. The comparison figures are 6 and 4% for the native-born. So roughly speaking, illegal immigrants are about, who, at least from an income perspective, about two and a half times more likely to get the EITC than native-born people. And for the ACTC, illegal immigrants are about three times more likely. So they are much more likely. And this essentially, the reason for that mainly is that it reflects the educational attainment of this population. Illegal immigrants, a very large fraction, had not even graduated high school in their own country when they came. Only a modest share have a college degree, and as a consequence, their average incomes tend to be much lower than the native-born, and so they're much more likely to get a welfare program like the EITC or the ACTC. And there's two, I think, takeaways from this. The first relates to what you just said, which is illegal immigrants are more likely to be poor. Actually, immigrants in general are more likely to be poor, and so they're more likely to qualify for welfare programs. And one of the approaches that a lot of people, immigration skeptics included, have taken over the years is, well, immigration isn't the problem. It's just we have to build a wall around the welfare state. And what this suggests is that you can do, you know, that can have some effect in limiting the costs. Because as we pointed out, the ACTC doesn't, there isn't as much of that being paid to illegal immigrants as there used to be because some of the rules tightened up. But ultimately, you just can't let in lots of poor people without it costing taxpayers money. Yeah, if you had to put it in a bumper sticker, there's a high cost to cheap labor. There's no way that an advanced industrial society like ours with a well-developed welfare state 
can absorb lots of immigrants with modest education levels and not end up paying out a lot in welfare or what are sometimes referred to as means-tested programs. And the EITC and the ACTC are good examples. I mean, the bottom line here is, yeah, with the exception of those illegal immigrants using stolen identities, illegal immigrants who've been issued social security numbers or who have gotten an ITIN are not breaking the law by receiving cash payments from these programs, which then points to a key question as well. Is the decision to issue social security numbers and ITINs to millions of illegal immigrants cannot help but undermine immigration law and encourage more people to come to America illegally. That doesn't mean that all legal immigrants come to get welfare. It doesn't mean that all legal immigrants get welfare. But it does mean that the very large share who do get these programs is an, enti- is an encouragement, is an inducement for them to stay and for more people to come. And that, I think, perhaps is even more important than the billions of dollars we pay out through these programs. Because what that means is that the, the thing that we're talking about here today, these welfare payments, essentially cash payments via the tax system, are really just one more example of our unserious approach to immigration. Because if you're issuing social security numbers to illegal aliens, how serious really are you about enforcing immigration law? And there's other, you know, areas in our immigration law where you see similar, I don't know, frivolousness may even be a way to put it, about enforcing our own laws. Right. So if you're going to be issuing driver's licenses, which is our de facto ID system in the United States, explicitly to illegal immigrants, if you're going to be giving illegal immigrants in-state college tuition and other benefits of that kind, if you're going to be giving them social security numbers, if even when you've identified an illegal immigrant in a jail, if that jurisdiction purposefully releases the illegal immigrant after ICE, that's the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, um, asks the jail to hold that person, releasing them as a matter of policy, as any number of cities and counties and states do in the United States, you are clear, you are sending an unequivocal message to everyone here and in other countries who are thinking about coming illegally that we don't take our own laws seriously, why should you? And paying welfare benefits to illegal immigrants, as we've documented here, is really just another example of all the things that we're doing to encourage illegal immigrants to come and stay. And this points to another point. A lot of people, often on, sometimes among the, say, libertarians, argue, well, look, you just can't stop people from coming, right? America's a richer country, wages are higher here, People are want, want to come. Now, it's certainly challenging to control immigration in a modern age, especially when you always want to treat people fairly and have an asylum system and treat everybody with the respect as human beings that they're entitled to. That is a challenge. But the idea that immigration is like the weather, that you just can't do anything about it, would seem to be absurd on its face when you look at all the things we do to encourage it. And we haven't even mentioned all the things we're not doing to enforce the law, namely requiring the use of a system like E-Verify, which was envisioned four decades ago. It exists, but we don't require employers to verify that their workers are legally in the United States. We don't have the kind of cooperation between local law enforcement 
and the immigration service. We don't control our border in the way that we ought to. We don't monitor the arrival and departure of temporary visitors to ensure that the time limit on their visas has been honored. And the list kind of goes on and on. So not only do we not enforce our laws, but we actually, in the case of welfare programs and many other things, encourage more illegal immigration. So the argument that immigration is uncontrollable, it's a force of nature, does not make any sense when you look at the actual evidence. And to give people a little hope, you and your team did a study on the first two years of the Trump administration. So this is before the pandemic. And this report is on our site as well, cis.org, that showed the growth in the illegal population did slow dramatically, even though the economy was going on, running on all cylinders with record low unemployment. Right. So what we looked at was arrivals in particular. It does appear that overall, there's just no question that arrivals of new immigrants to the United States was down during the, the Trump administration. That, that's, there's no question about that. And it appears that there was a fall off in legal immigration and a fall off in illegal immigration, though not from Central America. That continued to be quite large. So immigration certainly isn't the weather. You can reduce it. You can gain control. Could you eliminate it entirely? Of course not. But that's true of any violation of the law. The question here is, are we making a serious effort? And I would say one other thing. One of the things that people who take this immigration is a force of nature kind of argument is they point to the amount of money we spend. But spending a lot of money on some areas of the border or a fancy new detention facility it does not mean that you're serious about immigration law. It's like buying a really fancy, nice new lock for your front door that you spent a lot of money on and an alarm system that costs a lot. But you never turn the alarm system on and you leave the back door open. You could say, well, I'm spending a lot on trying to keep people out of my house, but you're not really serious. And that's sort of what we have here. There is infrastructure at the border that we've spent a lot of money on. We have a lot of Border Patrol agents, certainly more than we used to, but we're not doing any of the other things that would deter illegal immigration or make people leave, whether it's at the border or especially within the interior of the United States. Okay, Steve, that was good. I think we will wrap it up here. Again, this report, the name is Estimating Illegal Immigrant Receipt of Cash Payments from the ITC and the ATC. For those of you who are interested in it, there's bullets at the beginning. You don't have to read all of the fine print, but whatever you want to do, it's online. In my closing commentary, I wanted to talk a little bit about refugee policy, because this past Sunday, the 20th, was World Refugee Day, according to the United Nations. And this year is the 70th anniversary of the current refugee system, specifically the 70th anniversary of the United Nations Refugee Treaty. And what's important about this is that it has shaped refugee policy since the end of World War II and is the basis of our own refugee system, which was codified in the 1980 Refugee Act. The problem, of course, is that this was all 70 years ago. The whole way we approach the issue of refugees and asylum is an anachronism. It's an artifact of post-World War II, early Cold War politics. When there were people fleeing 
the Soviet takeover of Eastern Europe. And the Soviets were trying to prevent that. It was a very completely different world. In 1967, the refugee treaty was expanded to cover the whole world. Initially in 1951, it only applied to Europe. And that expansion called the protocol relating to the status of refugees is what the U.S. signed and a number of years later enacted in domestic law in the form of the Refugee Act in 1980. And it's long past time to reassess the way we do refugee resettlement. I uh, have a piece that I'd published a few years ago on the immorality of mass refugee resettlement. And I won't go into that in detail, but the basic argument is that we spend 12 times as much money resettling one refugee in the United States as we would supporting one refugee in a country near his home country, in the region that he lives in. And so what that means is that by bringing one refugee here, we are denying those resources to the 11 other people we could have helped with better education, better conditions in a refugee camp, whatever it is, in the region that they're from. And also, it's much more likely they would return once the emergency is over if they're living next door to their home country. And our asylum policy, which is part of our refugee policy, is also an anachronism. It is now being used by these transnational anti-borders groups as a crowbar to pry open the borders of developed countries and prevent the electorates of those countries from actually controlling their own immigration policies. So on this 70th anniversary of the UN Refugee Treaty, we need to think hard about withdrawing from the Refugee Treaty and withdrawing from the Convention Against Torture, which is basically uh, partners with it in U.S. law in preventing the government from actually enforcing immigration law. Now, that would not mean we'd never take refugees or give asylum or somehow approve of torture. What it means is that the elected representatives of the American people would determine what immigration policy is and how it works, rather than being bound by an international treaty from a lifetime ago, which has become an anachronism in a world that looks nothing like the world of 1951. That's all for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And as a reminder, we're online at cis.org. The podcast obviously is available in all the usual podcast places as well as on our website. And I hope you will tune in next week. Thank you.